0: We'll open your copy of God's word to Mark chapter 7. We've made it to Mark 7. Mark chapter 7. As you're turning there, I want to let you know as we work through this passage, it's a very simple passage. There's not lots of exegetical twists or strange discoveries that you wouldn't see at first glance, but it is very convicting. I wanna tell you, it's been a long time since I had to push back from my desk like I did several times this week looking at this passage and thinking, wow, I didn't see that coming, Lord. But there is so much loaded material in here that I think uh, the Lord is going to speak to us so specifically. I'm glad we sang speak, O Lord, Aaron, because that's exactly what we want him to do in this text. Mark chapter seven, follow along as I begin reading in verse One. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around Jesus when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and All the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they can't come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many, many other things which they have received in order to observe such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition for Moses said honor your father and mother and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death but you say if a man says to his father or to his mother whatever I have that would help you is Corbin, it's an offering to God given to God you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother thus thus invalidating The word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many such things as that. Everyone recognizes expertise. We can see it. We can tangibly feel expertise. Watching sporting events is an obvious example. If you've ever had little kids and they have played t-ball to get a number of t-ballers playing whatever position they walked out to and, and some kid who's six years old hits the ball off the tee and this herd of children chase after this ball and then play with it, no idea that they should probably throw it back to home. But lots of home runs in t-ball. Comparing that to going to Kaufman Stadium and watching the Royals watching a shortstop who can cover 10 yards on each side of him with incredible acumen athletic skill twisting turning firing and into a mitt that's 4 by 4 inches and hitting it with precision expertise we can recognize we did this morning the expertise of musicians very easily Those who have worked very hard at their craft, a cellist, a violinist, a pianist, drums, bass, vocalist who've worked hard. You can tell experts, can't you? Maybe you heard of the feat that happened last summer of mountain climber, rock climber Alex Honnold. Did you hear about what he did? He became the first person to climb the 3,000-foot sheer granite face wall of El Capitan in the Yosemite Valley without ropes in four hours, 3,000 feet. Now, it's one thing for you and me to as mere rock climbing mortals to say that's pretty impressive, but the rock climbing experts have called what he did and they say there's no exaggeration. What he did was the greatest athletic event of our lifetime and perhaps in the history of mankind. I've been to Yosemite. I've looked at El Capitan. I am not going to argue with that description. That someone would just shimmy up that 3,000 foot wall with no ropes. We have words for that and we have places to put people who do those kind of things. (laughs) I watched a documentary on this climb and the experts, the best climbers in the world said this, quote, he had to be perfect on this four-hour climb. Had he made one simple mistake, one mistake, he would have fallen to his death. Wow. We all marvel and respect expertise, and, and we should. But in the passage before us, we, we find a different kind of expertise. We find some experts at doing the worst possible thing imaginable. Look back for a moment at verse nine. Jesus was saying to them, you are experts At, listen to this, setting aside the commandment of God of all the things for which we could be called experts. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ looking at you and saying, you're an expert! As setting God's word aside. Wow. Who wants to be that kind of expert? Jesus Shows up in this area. He's just been across the lake. He's fed tens of thousands of people on the opposite shore of Lake Galilee. He's avoided the crowds by sending, avoided the crowds making him king by sending them off. He sends the disciples out ahead of him. As they get out in the middle of the lake, they're rowing hard against the wind making no traction at all, probably in a stalemate, stuck, unable to even return to the shore. And so he does what? He walks out to them on top of the water and calms the storm. Matthew tells us after he does that, immediately, immediately they are across in the region of Tyre and Sidon and the Gennesaret region. He gets out and where he was not recognized on the lake by the disciples, he is immediately recognized by the crowds. He had been in that area before. They had no doubt said, I have a sick friend, family member. I have a lame situation myself. I, I wish I had seen him. Well, the rumor gets out really fast. He's back in the area. People are bringing anyone they can to be healed and touched by him. They're only touching his garment just as the the woman with the bleeding had done. That word had gotten out and people said, if you just get close enough to touch his garment, you'll be healed and they were following him around and we find out something here in chapter seven. He didn't just attract the crowds, he attracted some critics. His fame had spread to Jerusalem, a hundred miles south and the attention of the Jewish leaders was now focused squarely and securely on him. Why? He was the greatest threat to their leadership. I mean, imagine that you hear from someone, no internet, no cell phones. People are coming in in droves to Jerusalem, coming from Galilee, coming even from the Decapolis in the Gentile area. They're coming through Jerusalem. You're not gonna believe this man, what he's teaching up in Galilee, what he's doing. He's healing sick people. He's making limbs that didn't exist grow. And the allegiance that people had toward Jesus, instead of being welcomed by the Jewish leaders, was instantly shunned, and they were critical because the attention was now on him and not them. So they send a delegation, they send some spies, they send some their best, their theologians, see what he's doing and then confront him, publicly humiliate him was their strategy, and then we'll put him in his place and us back in ours. As you see Jesus' interaction with the scribes, think of those as the theologians. The scribes and the Pharisees, think of those as the theological conservatives of the day. And the Sadducees, think of those as the theological liberals of the day. So you have the theologians, the liberals, the conservatives, all of them attacking Jesus, trying to argue with him in public to publicly humiliate him so that they would have their position of respect and Jesus would be discarded. Every day, every day, Jesus gets up. He's going to preach to the masses and there's this group of men badgering him and dogging him and arguing with him and interrupting him. We find one of those scenes in chapter seven. Conflict has been going on between Jesus and these delegates. We encounter this scene and so much is revealed about them as well as the Savior. You know, we've said all the way along, we're building a Christology, we're building our theology of Christ as we're looking at, at him through Mark's lens, but we're also building a theology of men, a biblical, we call it an anthropology, what's inside the heart of man? what's inside the heart of, of you and me and seeing what's there that needs to be cured and adjusted and corrected and fixed because of Christ and the good news. So let's look at this text. and As we walk through it, I want you to find with me two ways to be on the wrong side of God. That's who these men were. That's what they demonstrate that they uh, came to be. They were on the wrong side of God. And if there's anything you and I should want more than anything else, it's to not be in this category. Two ways to be on the wrong side of God and we see this by looking at these Pharisees, this delegation from Jerusalem that had come up to try to control Jesus and put him in his place. Number one, stubborn adherence to extra biblical standards. Stubborn adherence to standards that weren't in the Bible. Extra biblical standards. Let's pick it up in verse one. The Pharisees and some of the scribes, these theologians, these experts, these They're sometimes called lawyers, attorneys in the the things of the Mosaic law. The Pharisees, these conservatives, these legalists and some of the scribes, they gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. So get the picture. They've taken the 100 mile journey up. Taken a few days. Walked up. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? The rumor's out. He's on that side of the lake. He's up, up in the Tyre and Sidon region. Up off the coast of Gennesaret. And they say, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? They find him. they Follow to the place where he is and they surround him. It says gathered around him. Literally, they were a mob that circled him. They had him caged. And had seen some of his disciples. Now we find out they've been stalking these men, Jesus and the disciples. They've been following them around trying to find something they did wrong for which they could bring accusation. They had seen, literally they were in the process of seeing, they saw often, in other words, that some of the disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. That is, they were eating food and they hadn't washed their hands. Now, I know what some of you moms are thinking. And this is not the verse for that. <laughs> Verses 3 and 4, Mark pulls us aside, gives us some background about this, uh, uh, it's written to, by the way, to a Greek Gentile audience, Mark is. He would have to explain a lot of things about Jewish customs that that Matthew or or Luke might not. Certainly not John. And throughout the gospel, Mark gives us little asides, little footnotes for people unfamiliar with Jewish customs to understand the scene. And that's exactly what he does here. So let's ask ourselves what the background is that Mark is going to fill us in. First of all, this had nothing to do with hygiene. Nothing to do with washing your hands like you would tell your kids. And keep doing that, by the way. That's a good thing to do. Uh, just This is not the verse for that. Uh, they weren't washing their hands. What, what does that mean? This was a ceremonial... Dare I say, superstitious ritual that had been placed on them by the elders and the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership, which, here it is, had not appeared anywhere in their Bibles. So, verse 3, Mark says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. Thus observing, here it is, the tradition of the elders. They weren't doing this for hygienic reasons. They were doing this so that no one would rat them out and call them unspiritual for being ceremonially clean before they ate. This also indicates this was a very public thing done. How would you know whether the disciples had eaten, had washed their hands ceremonially before they ate, unless it, you were used to people doing this publicly so everyone could see? Typically, you would do this outside, in public, making a lot of fanfare, and then you go inside and eat. Well, they watched the disciples go inside with Jesus, go inside rooms and buildings And they came out having eaten. No indication that they had followed this tradition. But critical here is they were observing the traditions of the elders. There's going to be a contrast that Jesus makes in a minute with the word of God and these traditions. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. Why is that a little footnote in there because the marketplace is where everyone was so they would likely, I'm going to eat. Everyone come and watch me wash my hands and see how spiritual I am and know how I am in good standing with the elders and their traditions because I have washed my hands and like a surgeon, they walk off ceremonially clean. Now I can go and and please God by eating my my food with God-inspired, ordained, clean hands. No. It was done with a lot of pomp and circumstance, very publicly. Middle of verse four. And there were, this is, listen, many other things which they have received in order to observe. Stop right there. Oh my goodness. They, were, they, they would say you can only walk a certain amount of steps from your house on a Sabbath. They would say you could only carry a certain amount of wood for your fire, on and on and on. You had to clip your fingernails in a certain order. Laying burdens on people that were not in the law of Moses, not in the Bible, saying, if you do these things, not in the Bible, if you do this list, you will be ceremonially clean, accepted by God, and in good standing with the religious community. He gives a few of these other things, washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. In other words, it wasn't just washing your hands, you had to wash the utensils as well. You got to wonder which, which did you wash first? Because didn't one, wouldn't one contaminate the other? But that's another story. It was a big show. It's to show off their religiosity. It was a way to judge also those who didn't do it. The short of it is that their traditions were held for two basic reasons. Number one, superstition. They created rules, listen, that they could easily obey so that they could think they pleased God. And secondly, they did it out of man-pleasing. They did it to please other people's eyes so that people would say, oh. And we know that because these men from Jerusalem were stalking the disciples and knew they hadn't done it. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes ask him. Now, now comes the fight. Now they engage. They'd have thought these things. They had seen these things. They'd observed these things. They had gotten their ledger of accusations. They had their court case tight and filed. And they find Jesus. They literally surround him. And here they go. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? That's code for our traditions. But they eat their bread with impure hands. We find out here that the disciples under Jesus' leadership and under Jesus' influence did not observe this tradition of public washing before meals. Why? It wasn't a biblical command. In this narrative, pay close attention to what Jesus says about these men and about their traditions. By the way, just for a second, look up. The tradition of the elders, we've seen. Verse seven, the precepts of men. Verse eight, the tradition of men. Verse 13, your tradition. So we know these traditions were were sometimes invented and certainly regulated and held accountable by these men. Your traditions, in verse 13, Jesus calls them. How do we know this is a man-made tradition? Well, if you do some research, you can find out that According to Exodus 30, verses 17 to 20, and chapter 40, verses 30 to 32, hand washing before meals was only prescribed to priests when they were doing priestly services, not even a meal. The only ceremonial hand washing was for priests to show the people I have symbolically cleansed myself inside and out and I'm going to do work on behalf of you before God and on behalf of God for you. Nowhere, anywhere in the Old Testament does it say, ceremonially wash your hands before you eat and make sure everyone sees it too. They were resolute and they were stubborn. Make no mistakes, they were very religious. They were committed. They were all in. But they were not so committed to knowing and obeying the scriptures as they were obeying and honoring their extra-biblical traditions. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Traditions that were set forth by men outside of the pages of Scripture to be held. Stubborn adherence to extra-biblical standards. We'll say more about that in a moment. Secondly, second way to be on the wrong side of God, which these men found themselves, is to be proficient, to provide proficient disregard of God's written word. They were able to have proficient, expert expertise in disregarding God's written word. Verse six. And he said to them, I love that. This is a lot against one. The disciples don't speak here. We already found out in the first two verses they've surrounded him. This is a mob mentality. They're trying to embarrass him. They're trying to say something. They're trying to get him to say something for which everyone would go, gotcha, see that. This would happen over and over. This is the scene that's going to continue to play out all the way to the trial of Jesus and to his death. But Jesus had a few things to say back. Now, think about this. If you go by sheer force, he is outnumbered. I'm sure it was more than a lot to 12 or 13. Surrounded, massive crowd. Literally, they were were mobbing in on him. They were crowding in on him, pressing on him. Why are your disciples not honoring our tradition? So he says, verse six, (laughs) rightly did Isaiah prophesy Isaiah was right when he talked about you hypocrites. Wow, that's bold. Think about the audacity here. We just, it's so simple to read this passage and go, oh, that was a little vignette. Let's get to chapter eight. He, his life was under threat. They were already concocting a way to murder him, pressing in, pressing on him. The disciples probably not in that circle. And he says, Isaiah was right to talk about you hypocrites. Then, before they can say, when did Isaiah talk about us? He quotes Isaiah. Isaiah 29. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain they do worship me. In vain, uselessly. They worship me. And here's the key teaching as doctrine the precepts of men, men's ideas. Let me read you Isaiah 29, verse 13, from which Jesus quotes. He quotes the Septuagint version of this, by the way. The Lord said, Because his people draw near with words, with their words, and honor me with their lips, lip service. They remove their hearts far from me. So they're doing everything externally to look like they're close to God, but in their heart they're far from God. And their reverence for me consists of traditions learned by rote. Jesus says when Isaiah wrote this about the contemporary people that he was addressing, he had, he had you in focus too. You hypocrites. Now look for a second, just drill down for a second in that. Their heart, Jesus goes from the outside to the inside. They were talking about washing hands, external. Jesus goes to the internal. Their heart was far, is far away from me. You know what that tells us? Can I frighten you a little bit? It is very possible to look like you are a worshiper of God, in good standing with God, externally, and your heart still be far from the Lord. Their lips honor me, but their heart is far from me. It's even possible to talk, a good talk, to seem like you love the Lord, to say the right things, to rehearse the right doctrine, to to be a participant in your care group and have a heart that is drifted from nearness to God. Then he goes on, when that happens, the next step is to... Get other people to be in that category with you. He says, they worship me in vain. Read Isaiah 66 sometimes. They worship me in vain. They come, in our context, to church. They look good. They sing the songs. They fellowship. They interact. They eat the, the cookies and, and drink uh, the, 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 the Kool-Aid and, and clean up the church. And that look, It looks great on the outside. The problem is when they start teaching, they teach the precepts of men as doctrine. In other words, they take ideas, humanistic ideas, and elevate them to the, the same level as God's word. This would have been a shock to these, these delegates. They were expecting to have Jesus say something to trap him, and he just lamb them. He says, they on, you're on the wrong side of God. You're a hypocrite. They thought they were on the right side of God. And Jesus says, actually, you're on the opposite side of God. How did this happen? Verse 8. Neglecting, neglecting, listen to that word, neglecting, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Jesus sets up the Two standards of authority, either the word of God or the traditions of men. Only two sources of authority. You've neglected the commandment of God. We're going to come back to the word neglect in a minute. You've not read your Bible. You've not had your quiet times. He goes on, verse 9. He was also saying to them, not only had they neglected, you are experts at what? Setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition, in order to follow your instincts and follow your tradition and follow your thoughts and submit to your feelings. What an indictment. You have become an expert at setting God's word aside. Now, can we just do a little heart work right there? Of all the things for which we are looking for proficiency and expertise, I don't think anyone, I hope, no one in this building will say, I wanna be expert at setting God's word aside, but have we developed schemes to justify when we don't come to God's word, when we neglect it? Have we developed justifying excuses for why we've set it aside? Oh, it's real easy to throw rocks at these guys. Really easy. This is intended to hold up a mirror to you and me. For the people listening, wouldn't just have been that cohort of of critics, lots of crowd around. Uh, Jesus uses now a case study to prove his point. And he uses the case study from their own tradition and their own lives. This is incredible. Now, I got to give you a little background before we drop into this or it won't make a lot of sense. He uses the term Corbin. See that word Corbin, Declared Corbin. It's just a Hebrew word that means an offering, a, something that's been devoted to God. It could be money, it could be animals, it could be inheritance. At some point during the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, a corrupt Jewish leadership had learned to leverage wealth From the people. Here's what was happening. People were allowed. It's like buying a future almost. People were allowed to designate their possessions that they had in their own possession at the time as, quote, Corban. As an offering. Which meant eventually upon their death. Or when they no longer needed these possessions. Or this money. Eventually they would use these resources for the temple, for the synagogue, for sacred worship. I'm declaring my wealth as Corbin. Now, what did that do? It actually drew a circle around it and said nobody can touch that wealth except you, still in your possession, and the Jewish leadership. Sounds noble enough, doesn't it? But that was becoming a loophole for obeying God. Actually, a loophole for adult children to avoid assisting their aging parents who had needs while they were looking like loyal religious worshipers in the minds of the religious elders. So under the direction and oversight of the rabbinic system led by these Pharisees, here's the sad reality. Even if parents needed financial assistance and care from their children, their adult children, the system prohibited them from spending money on their parents because they had already declared it an offering or Corban to the temple. It was a loophole for these adult children to get out of the command to take care of their parents, to honor their parents. One commentator says this, quote, though a person could declare all of his possessions Corbin, he was not required to donate them immediately to the temple or synagogue. For the most part, the pledged possessions remained under his control. In fact, whenever he wanted to use them for his own possessions, he could reverse the vow of Corbin by merely saying, Corban, again, over it. Like casting a spell. This hypocritical system promoted by the Pharisees and scribes allowed people to maintain an external veneer of dedication to God while simultaneously turning their backs on their parents. Now that you know that, let's drop into verse 10. For Moses said, this is from Exodus 20, verse 12, Deuteronomy 5, verse 16, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother... And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Quoting Exodus 21, verse 17. Honor your father and mother. The Bible says that. You say the loophole is Corbin. The Bible says, Moses said, honor your father and mother. And if you don't, you're worthy of death. Now, if you have a pen and you mark your Bibles, I want to encourage you to think about this one. Verse 11. But you say. Stop right there. Moses said, God's word said, but you say. You see the difference there? God's word says X, but you have a Y and a Z. And you start over with A, B, C, D. You go on. This reminds us what we've said so often. The two most dangerous threats to your application of Scripture are the words but and and. The Catholic Church is mostly the word and. Well, the Bible says that and the Pope and the magisterium and the councils. What's really a frightening, though, is when someone says, well, I know the Bible says that, but, but, that's this. Jesus says, but you say, but you say. God's word says, honor your parents. If you're not, you're worthy of death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you, there's the the idea of honoring your father and mother, is Corban. That is to say, it's given to God. I have nothing to give to you. I've already declared it to God. And you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. You no longer, you elders, you scribes, you Pharisees, you actually regulate against his honoring his mother and father because you say you own his possessions. Wow. Verse 13, thus (laughs) invalidating The word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. Then he adds this footnote, and you do many things such as that. It's not just this. Lots of loopholes are created as a way to get around obeying God's clear word. Is that uniquely a first century invention? I'll bet if we spent the rest of the afternoon and kind of Broken into small groups and talked, we could all identify loopholes that we have suggested to our own heart as ways around obeying God and His Word. How about the simple neglecting of God's word? Well, I'm gonna start on Monday. I'm tired. Week starts best on Monday. Actually, the first of the year would be a good time to start. Well, God knows I'm tired, He knows how much I've sacrificed comes to thinking about giving this is about money things of giving to the the work of the lord and church and mission ah i'm going to wait till i pay this credit card off before i do that i'm going to wait till i get this thing and then i w- how quickly can we say god's word says x but but i have a different idea wow now i want to go back and pick up something that we quickly skirted over there's an escalation here and this escalation is so revealing and informative to our hearts. Look at the verb in verse seven. You neglect. Look at the verb in verse nine. You set aside or you reject. Athateo. Then verse 13, you invalidate. annul. Akaruo. You validate it. You say it's not even worth the paper it's written on. There's a progression here. Listen, neglecting God's word leads to ignoring God's word, which ultimately results in replacing God's word. Can I say that again? This is Jesus' progression. Neglecting God's word If you neglect it, that will inevitably lead to ignoring God's word, which makes sense. If you're neglecting it, if you're not putting your your face before, before the scriptures, you will end up ignoring it because it's not in your mind. Neglecting leads to ignoring, which ultimately leads to replacing. That's the word invalidating. God's word is invalidated because my tradition is more important. See the progression there? That's frightening. If you want to keep that progression from starting then we we nip it in the bud at the neglect right we don't neglect god's word we is this the read your bible more sermon yes it is this is jesus own read your bible more sermon don't neglect coming to god's word the temptation right now to spin off and say how we have no excuse i mean most of you have your bible on your phone you're never without it And if you ever say, I don't have time, I would say, yes, you do. Everyone has time for what's most important to their value system. Neglecting leads to ignoring, which leads to replacing his word with traditions. Jesus adds by saying, and you do many things such as this. It wasn't just the washing of hands. It wasn't just the, the ignoring, uh, washing hands to be seen. It wasn't just ignoring uh, parents by, by completely uh, abrogating responsibility to care for them when they were old, when they cared for you when you were young. Not honoring. In fact, finding a financial loophole where you were conspiring with religious leaders to neglect parents. I was thinking specific people I won't name right now of people in our church, who I know, who are, who are sacrificing so much right now to care for aging and dying parents, some of whom don't even remember your name. That honors God. That's honoring your parents. Praise God for the examples of people we have in our church who are sacrificing so much in their adult lives for their parents. In the shadow of this text, Jesus would say, well done. Problem is they were setting aside God's words and setting their own ideas in place of his word, making, here it is, things that were not biblical sound religiously acceptable, which could easily listen, easily replace God's word with traditional ideas, making them seem like they were the same. I love First Thessalonians 2.13. Paul's telling the, the church there, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, not as tradition. You accepted it for what it really is, the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. Man, the most important thing that you and I can do in our heart is to receive this book as God's living, active, present word for us, to us, and about us. Are you receiving God's word or do you have the temptation to insert traditions that creep into your thinking? Now, I got a little list here that, uh, that I thought a lot about. And uh, it's from my experience over the last 30 plus years of ministry. But I, I, I kind of ask myself, what are traditions that people have elevated to scriptural status that really aren't scriptural, but they give such passionate attention to them that people who know you could easily think, you love God, you love this, this must be of, of God, A tradition is something that provides counsel and control over your life in place of God's word. For example, psychology. We can easily believe that our problems and trials are directly and only the result of our past or our circumstances or our situation or our brains instead of believing God's assessment that we are broken people because of what? Sin. And if sin is the problem, the gospel will be the solution. If psychology is the problem, good luck. Because you can find so many variables. Now that's not to throw everything in psychology under the bus. There there are things in observing people's behaviors that can be helpful, but that doesn't solve the sin problem. Another tradition, ready for this? I hope I can get out of the church today. Politics. We can easily believe that if we follow the right party with the right policies and watch the right news channel, God smiles and pats us on the head. Our doctrine becomes God is a Republican. philosophy we can easily think that the way we think philosophical ideas convictions about things without biblical warrant is the right and only way to do it and those who don't do what we do are wrong because what we're doing is right this can find expression in things like school choices birth control breastfeeding, eating or not eating of gluten. If you're a celiac, don't eat gluten, okay? Please don't. My brother-in-law's a celiac. If, you have a, uh, uh, if you've got the blood work that says that, that's great. But I have been told that it is godly not to eat gluten. I like gluten. I want to sprinkle gluten on everything I eat. It's so good. <laughs> oh, I'm not done yet. Dairy, sugar, meat, corn syrup, Yellow number five dye, yellow dye number five. Artificial sweeteners, vaccinations. I was told about 10 years ago, no, let's see, it had to be 15 years ago. I was asked, are are you getting your, your kids vaccinated from, I don't know, smallpox, whatever? I said, well, yeah. And I was taken out to lunch and told how I was in biblical violation for doing that. And I began to say, so I like verses. <laughs> Which verse is that in? If that's your prerogative, if that's your passion, those are, none of those in and of themselves are wrong. If, if you want to, to exercise preference in any of these issues, that's fine. But don't turn it into a tradition of man that competes with God's word. Fourth, religion. We can easily think that there are many ways to get to heaven, many ways to God. Invalidating what Jesus said that I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can elevate intuition as a tradition. Feelings. We can easily think something like this. Think about this. God wants me happy. Obeying him in this specific area does not make me happy since God wants me happy, this obedience doesn't make me happy. I don't have to obey. Experience. We've always done it this way. I was telling someone recently about our church and they say, do you have a, a very, we've already, we've always done it this way. We can't change things. Uh, kind of church and I said no we've we've had one services two services we've had one aisle three aisles we've we've got different music every week you, you are such a blessing to me because I don't sense a lot of well we've always done it that way around here if it's biblical we should always do it that way we, we talked about a little bit this morning about the public reading of scripture we don't do that because Rod did that previous pastor I do that and he did that because the Bible tells us to pay close attention to the public reading of scripture. It's, it's the Bible. And then lastly, relationships. We can elevate relationships almost to a tradition to obey instead of God's word. We can easily sacrifice obedience to relation, uh, our obedience to relationships, justifying dating unbelievers, lowering our moral standards around family members who we do not want to offend with our standards. All of this really is holding ourselves or holding someone else to a standard that does not include book, chapter, verse. Do you think these Pharisees began by thinking, we just want to be on the wrong side of God? In fact, they thought that they were on the right side of God and we're going to correct this Galilean preacher and put him on the right side with them. Listen, the whole thing points to Christ. The whole thing points to the gospel. I, I, I never cease to be amazed that, that God has chosen to save people in such a counterintuitive way. We don't have to make up ways to please God so he'll look down and say, wow, gotcha, good job. I live in an Orthodox uh, Jewish community. Uh, every Saturday, and sometimes on other holidays, there are dozens of people who walk by our house, uh, sometimes in very inclement weather, and I, I've had conversations with several of them, and said, so why, why are you walking? Well, because it pleases God that I don't drive today. And I naively say, well, I know a little about the Tanakh, the, the Old Testament, so Where does it say that? The answer, oh, this is a part of our, what? Tradition. Wow. Let's be people of the book, not legalists, people who understand the letter and the spirit that all points us to the fact that we can never, listen, praise God, we don't have to make up enough rules to to please him so that he gives us an attaboy and an interest into heaven. We can never make it. We can never make it. But Jesus did and gives us his righteousness that he lived on this planet. In exchange for our sinfulness, which he died for on the cross, declares us acceptable to God, solves our sin problem, brings us into fellowship with God and gives us hope for eternity because he raised from the dead. That's good news. That is great news that we don't have to not only take these laws, but also the ones that people make up and cross the T's and dot the I's so that God finally says, you made it, you made the cut, you you did enough. We'll never do enough, but he has. Praise God, he has.